This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Wembley and raised by her parents, who emigrated from Kenya and Mauritius. Her mother was a Conservative councillor for 16 years, which built the foundations of her own political career. Receiving a scholarship in her education, she went to Cambridge University, where she read law and chaired her Conservative Association. In 2015, she entered Parliament, but soon enough grew a reputation as a Brexit rebel, as one of the Spartans, the group who refused to vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal, not just once, twice, but three times. During her career in politics, she has made history. She became the first elected female Attorney General in Parliament and last year rewrote the law to become the first Cabinet member to take maternity leave whilst in office. My guest today is Suella Braverman. Thank you very much for coming on this podcast. We've been trying to get you on, I think, for almost two years. But between constitutional crises and children, it's taken a little bit longer than we planned. (laughs) Great diary secretaries. (laughs) But um, to begin, we always ask, was yours a happy childhood? Of course. I look back on my childhood with incredible fondness. My mother and father were incredibly supportive and encouraging. They taught me, I think, some really guiding principles that I hold true to my heart today. Your parents are both involved in the community as I mentioned in that introduction so I just wondered did you have a sense of politics growing up or I suppose duty was that something that was fostered much in the family? Well local politics was very present in my childhood. My mother as you said was an elected local councillor in Brent and my father was a campaigner and a supporter and by consequence it was in our house almost 24 hours seven days a week and I think my mum's work in the local community really brought to life politics for me. It was not about grey suits on the television saying things, it was about a homeless person coming to our house at night in need of shelter, it was about teachers going on strike, not a council issue, but my mum was really interested in politics and she made it very relevant to me. It was about a planning application which might be concreting over the local sports field and my mum really, my mum and dad really brought colour to the greyness that politics can sometimes acquire and it became a family hobby. I was listening to a profile of you recently where one of your friends from school recalled an election, a school election, where you, I think, represented the Tories. Can you talk us through that? (laughs) Yes, it wasn't the easiest time to be a Conservative because it was in 1997. And, of course, you will know then that there was a Labour landslide and the Tories were ejected from power. And we had a mock election at the time in our school. And I was the Conservative candidate. My mother was a councillor at that time. We were very much identifying with the Conservative Party and Conservative values. And we had a really vigorous election campaign actually within the school we all gave speeches there was a lot of focus on who gave out the most stickers I have to say but did you uh, have a good sticker game we had a lot of great stickers from the local conservative MP who had donated a few so what's your pitch to your fellow classmates bar stickers when you're saying you know actually vote Tory go against the grade ignore Blair mania <laughs> well I think it was very much about standing up for what's right in society, ensuring that we have a meritocracy in our society, fighting for the underdog, actually, that aspiration is about saying to people, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter 
what your parents did. It doesn't matter where you live. There are no limits to what you can achieve if you take an attitude of self-responsibility and ingenuity. Now, just from the introduction, it's quite clear you're an A-grade pupil. (laughs) But I, I wondered, why did you decide to study law? I was interested in law because... It's about society and it's about the mechanics of how our country and indeed the world work. And, you know, from everything, as I said, you you quoted something that I said a while ago about the kaleidoscopic nature of law. Everything touches upon law, from buying or selling a house to criminal law to the law of armed conflict. And law is, in many ways, the skeleton and politics is the flesh. Law makes politics happen. Law translates politics from high ideals and grand words and gestures into meaningful changes that have an effect on people's lives. And they are a reflection of any administration's raison d'etre. And what were your childhood ambitions? Because on this podcast, it sounds like it was perhaps law or politician. I mean, we had Therese Coffey on and her um, ambition was to be a mechanic nun. Combining a few interests, what were you thinking about? To be honest, I was just thinking about trying to get into university and get a good degree. And I wasn't really thinking beyond that. I don't come from a legal background. I don't have any connections to the legal profession. And it was only on a step-by-step basis of following my nose, following my interests, following my passions, that I ended up studying law and thereafter realised that actually I think the legal profession can offer some really great opportunities and actually being a self-employed advocate at the independent bar would suit me best. How did you find Cambridge? Was it a culture shock or not really? Cambridge University is one of the best universities in the world and it was an incredible honour to to study there. I was taught by I believe some of the best tutors that I've ever come across in a really encouraging setting and I matriculated in 1998 and that again was kind of peak Blair, if you like. So particularly amongst the student community, it was unpopular to be a conservative. But I did get involved in student politics. I became the chairman of the Cambridge University Conservative Association. And actually, that's where kind of my absorption in local politics through my family's work took on another dimension. And I became more aware of the National Party, national politics, and actually the larger organisation and the place that the Conservative Party occupies in our society. Now, you go into Paris, where you study French and EU law. I wonder, at what point, because when we're talking about the thread of your career, I think what uh, many listeners will know you for will be being, being a Brexiteer. And I just wonder, at what point had you started to think about that? Was that before Paris, your Eurosceptic views? You're right. I, I spent a year during my degree on exchange in Poitiers where I did a diploma and I really enjoyed my time in France so much so that I came back to Cambridge I graduated from my degree and I went to do a master's in Paris at the Sorbonne in French law and European law and that's really because I love France and my mother coming from Mauritius is a French speaker or a Creole speaker she you know taught me French from a very early age we are Francophiles in our family I'm fluent in French myself I studied in Spain while I was at school I love Europe but you know I did come back to the UK very grateful for our political system for our centre-right politics actually for our the Euroscepticism actually which was a, a strain in British politics at the time was Paris as fun as it sounds? Paris is a great city. I lived on the left bank and so I I had a a great cultural 
awakening, I would say. There was lots of poetry and French literature and jazz and French cinema. It was a great experience. And I, my years in France, uh, again, I look back on them with a lot of fondness. Now, you stood in 2005. It was a Labour seat, so it was unsuccessful. But you won your seat in 2015 and quite competitive seat. How was the selection process like? You're right. I was incredibly privileged to be selected by the Conservative Association in Fareham in early 2015, just a few months before the general election. You know, it's it's a difficult process for anyone who goes through it. I think there have been great examples of very esteemed politicians who have spent a lot of time and effort in trying to get selected to become an MP. It's about getting to know the area. It's about immersing yourself in that area. It's about making it your home to a large degree. And it's about actually the right fit. And when I look back on how the people of Fareham in the association and then more broadly in the, within the electorate selected me and then elected me as their MP, I really see it as a, a great fit. It's a, a seat where there are very decent, fair-minded people in Fareham. They voted for Brexit, very proud and patriotic. There's a lot of ex-army, ex-navy. We're near the naval base in um, Portsmouth, near the naval school in Collingwood. There's a huge amount of pride in our nation and that that really speaks to me and I love being the representative and spokesman for thousands of people in Fareham who really feel aligned with my values. Now you get to Parliament and quite quickly Brexit starts to dominate and I thought it was interesting because as we'll get on to when we're looking at that 2015 obviously Tory majority but then then ultimately is pushed for an EU referendum that emerges, everything changes in politics. Were you surprised that Brexit started to dominate as it did? Because I think as someone who has very developed views on it, obviously meant that you felt, I imagine, as though you had to take on a, a role in it. But maybe it wasn't what you expected when you entered Parliament. <laughs> well, you're right that the European question was not the driving force for me into politics. I was more interested at the time of my selection and election in domestic issues, in education. I'd helped set up a free school in law and order, in justice. But come early 2016, and David Cameron had not secured a fundamental renegotiation, which had been promised in our manifesto, it became inevitable, really, that I had to support leaving the European Union. And, and then looking back, despite my my love of France and, you know, my appreciation of European culture and history. There are seeds that I can identify to my Euroscepticism. I think they're born out of my work as a lawyer. And working in public law, judicial review, I, I was on the Attorney General's panel of specialist counsel defending the government in court, particularly in immigration cases. I really saw generally as a lawyer, how we lacked legal supremacy and that fundamentally the European Court of Justice had the final say legally and, you know, in very real terms that affected our lives. And that was something that I always considered ill-fitting with our tradition of parliamentary sovereignty in this country. Now, you chaired the European Research Group for a time. I think it's obviously a very historic group, but particularly in recent years has gone a, a legendary status. <laughs> so, so I wondered, you sometimes referred to in the media as a Brexit Spartan. Could you explain to listeners what, what that means to you, at least that term? <laughs> I was, again, honoured to be asked to chair the European Research Group. And I got involved with the ERG because we, we won the referendum in obviously June 2016 and I really thought wow this is amazing this has defied my expectations 
bravo to everybody who campaigned. Now we're going to start the next chapter of our history. It's going to be really exciting. And in late 2016, it dawned on me that that wasn't the case, that actually there was still huge resistance. There was a great feeling of denial amongst some quarters in our country. And there was a real backlash to what I saw as a legitimate instruction from the British people. And I really started to feel in late 2016 that this might not happen. And I really felt very concerned about that. I felt a lot of anxiety around the potential failure to deliver on democracy. And I I really thought, what can I do? And that's when I started to work with the European Research Group, full of, you know, expert, knowledgeable, experienced warriors who have been on the long march towards Brexit for many, many decades. And as as a grouping and as a coalition of many, many people within Parliament, it has become a an important force within within our party. You served as Treasury PPS, but you were appointed as a Brexit minister in 2018. You mentioned then just this fear in 2017 that actually there are so many forces against that result that it might not happen. At what point did you start to think that Theresa May may not be the right person or or the direction perhaps Theresa May was going in on the Brexit deal was, was the wrong one because you did resign eventually from that post? I did. I resigned from my position as Brexit minister in, I think it was November of 2018. 18. And that was when the final iteration of the withdrawal agreement and notably the Northern Irish backstop was revealed. And that's really when I, you know, I had growing concerns during my my whole tenure, actually, I had concerns, because there were lots of difficulties along the way. It was a a very painful process for everybody. And, And I know that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, worked incredibly hard to try and secure the best deal. Unfortunately, that wasn't so. And the 2018 backstop was fundamentally undemocratic. It would have tied Northern Ireland indefinitely to the European Union. It didn't respect the UK Customs Union. It didn't reinforce Northern Ireland's place as part of the UK Customs Territory. And importantly, there was no way out of that backstop. And I felt that 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 was a step too far. That was unacceptable. And I had to take the very difficult decision to resign. I never thought I would be someone who would resign from a government position, but the circumstances dictated that I had to. And before you know it, you're becoming a Brexit rebel <laughs> in the various meaningful votes. I think what's interesting is if you look at that third meaningful vote, which I think was that point where I remember walking around Parliament on the day and everyone's waiting to see what Geoffrey Cox would say, your predecessor as Attorney General. There was just this real sense, you know, this could potentially come together, it could all fall apart. And there was a lot of pressure on the so-called Brexit Spartans to fall into line and back it in that MV3. And... I was reading an article this morning and it was recalling this and saying actually history is going to judge this group much better than they were at the time. And it had various I think, Twitter grabs and screen grabs of articles saying, you know, you've got to back this deal. I think some included figures at The Spectator. So it was coming from the right too. What was that like at the time, that level of pressure? Did you feel very pressurised by colleagues, the media to, to fall into line on the deal? Without a doubt, the vote, meaningful vote three, and my vote on that was the hardest few days, hardest decision that I've ever been involved in of my political career, potentially my even my professional career. The pressure from, as you say, the right uh, from within the Conservative Party was immense. And I think for those of us who held out and did persist without objection to the deal on MV3, we all came under excruciating 
pressure. And I think there was a sense that we were somehow betraying the party. There was a sense that we were ruining Brexit, all of which was wrong. We were actually being faithful to the literal interpretation of the deal. Nothing had changed between MV1 and MV3, to my mind, to the deal. If I had resigned over it six months prior, well, I'm going to maintain my position as I saw it. And for me, it was very difficult. And it really was about a tension between party and principle. And on that occasion, I put party and country first. I believe that deal was not Brexit. It would have been a total failure to deliver Brexit. It would have been a reneging on our promise to Northern Ireland and to the United Kingdom, to the 17 million people who voted to leave the European Union. I could not appease that and support that and therefore in many ways it was a very simple decision it was just external circumstances that made it very hard and since then I mean Boris Johnson's one of the people to vote for meaningful vote free have you had any colleagues say you know I was wrong to criticize you because what happened at that point was the deal didn't go through and therefore there was eventually a change of leader Boris Johnson managed to renegotiate the Tories win a majority of 80 so did, did anyone I know there was a Spartans dinner I think a few months ago but has anyone outside of that group said I was wrong to criticize you I haven't heard that myself. I'm not waiting for it either. I don't, and I don't need anybody yeah. to say that to me. And I, I'm sure I speak for my fellow Spartans. But I'm very proud to be a Spartan. I, it demonstrated what a group of individuals can achieve, even when they are against the odds and when the pressure is immense against them. And I'm really glad that we stuck to our the courage of our convictions, that we stuck to our resolve, that we saw we had faith. And fundamentally what it was about is was my faith in our democratic institutions to deliver Brexit. I knew that yes, it would be hard. I knew that yes, this may impact on our results in the European elections. I knew that there were going to be difficulties within politics. But fundamentally, I also believed that we would not let the British people down. We've got too rich a heritage and legacy in this country on delivering on democracy, on democratic politics. And I didn't think this was going to be the time where we would start failing democracy. Now, Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister. And in the 2020 February reshuffle, you were appointed Attorney General. For listeners who perhaps are not up to date with what uh, Attorney General does every minute of the day. What is a a day in the life? There's no average day as Attorney General. It's an incredible honour to be the government's chief legal advisor. I attend Cabinet and I advise and assist on all matter of issues that raise legal questions. It's a brilliant job for someone who loves the law but wants to couple that with an appreciation of politics. We make law and politics work at the heart of our constitution at the Attorney General's office. I'm served by a great team of lawyers and officials in my team. I also have a a superintendent's role over the Crown Prosecution Service, so I have a a criminal justice part to play. But it's an incredibly varied role. I sometimes appear in court. As I say, it reminds me very much of my, my days back at the bar. Now, I want to talk about a few things relating to your brief. And I suppose the first was just, this has happened, but there was a row quite early on to you taking on that position about the internal markets bill, which Minister said broke international law in a limited and specific way. It was later changed, but I, I just... At the time, I think that there was quite a lot of criticism directed at yourself, I think also at Robert Buckland, suggesting that this was a challenge to the rule of law, a threat to Britain's reputation. And I wonder if you could just talk listeners through 
how what happened with that bill relates to what you think UK law should be doing and sovereignty? In many ways, part five of the UK Intel Market Bill, which was the relevant provisions that you're talking about, were prescient because they were designed to avoid some of the problems that we're seeing occurring right now in relation to Northern Ireland and Great Britain and the trade of goods across the Irish Sea. And in that regard, it was a very important piece of legislation. What's curious is the backlash or the outrage from the usual suspects, I may add, about the orthodox constitutional principle of parliamentary supremacy. And you know, any first-year law student should be able to quote verbatim Dicey, who is the, the founding father of parliamentary supremacy, which is, you know, it is a fundamental principle of our constitution that parliament has the right to make or unmake any law whatsoever. And no body or person is recognised in English law as having a right to override or set aside legislation of parliament. And that is you know, echoed by many, many eminent jurists. That is the orthodox principle that parliamentary supremacy is where legislation is the most superior form, has the most authority, and it prevails over executive action. It's an important legitimising force in our constitution. Therefore, what Parliament says must happen. And Parliament was enacting certain provisions. And to my mind, I'm, I'm still bemused as to why that was so controversial. It's really interesting hearing you obviously explain how, how you see it. And also, I think it does mean that when there's lots of criticism about the UK government's plans on legal issues, it often feels as though it's still almost this Brexit divide sometimes in terms of the sovereignty you're talking about. But I wondered... On Brexit, do you think we are using the Brexit powers we have to the full potential? And I mean also in, in terms of the law, as you say, this is something you've fought really hard for, but lots of people don't think we are at the moment. Well, what's crucial to understand is, again, it comes back to parliamentary supremacy. Parliamentary supremacy is at the heart of the constitutional revolution that is Brexit. And it's what gives us the opportunity to finally take decisions in our own right, design our destiny as a, an independent country that governs itself. And that's why there's some really important work which is afoot to enable that more meaningfully. In particular, the retained EU law bill, which will be introduced very soon into Parliament, is critical to enabling Brexit opportunities. And Jacob Rees-Mogg is the minister responsible for Brexit opportunities. And what that does is it it's all about regularising a body of law that is built up by virtue of our membership of the European Union, 40 years or so, which has acquired a superior status to subsequent law, to more homegrown law, to other law. And we therefore, at the moment, have a two-tier system, actually, of regulations, directives, uh, everything from the EU, which has been incorporated into the UK legal order. We need to pass an act to remedy that two-tier system. That body of law, which was passed by virtue of our membership of the European Union, lacks full legitimacy. It wasn't fully democratic. In many ways, the UK didn't have a proper say over the incorporation of a lot of the thousands, we're talking about thousands, of the laws that have flowed from the European Union. Therefore, we need to be you know, it's principled, it's a legitimate decision, and it's also practical that we need to 
enable a mechanism to empower ministers in the future to go back and change aspects of that law should they wish to. Now, one of the things we often read in the news about is the Good Law Project. And often it feels as though, well, they are often on the other side of the government because that's that's what they're trying trying to challenge. Could you just talk, listeners, a bit through what the Good Law Project does and from your perspective, what the government is trying to do there? The Good Law Project has been challenging the court in several cases, mainly related to its decision-making on COVID. And despite some of its PR, despite some of its communications, it's roundly failing in its raison d'etre of successfully challenging the government. In eight out of 10 cases, the government has won. And the Good Law Project has been ordered to pay the government over £300,000 in our costs so far. So I'm not sure Good Law Project is the right name for this organization you know it's not very good law project frankly and uh, they're not they're not succeeding (laughs) they're not really succeeding in their claims against the government they're trying to say that the government's decision making has been unlawful and that there's been illegitimacy in some of the decisions that we've made it raises a lot of broader issues some of our reforms on judicial review are particularly pertinent. The bill that's currently going through Parliament is really important to redress the current imbalance as I see it. We don't want judicial review to be abused by people who want to play politics through the courts. And for too many years now, we have seen that pattern evolving. We saw it during the Brexit years, but we're seeing it here, I believe. And I think that we have to look at questions of standing. In particular, this recent case, which we won against the Good Law Project, made clear that the Good Law Project locus it's standing for bringing these kind of claims where it doesn't actually have a direct interest really should be questioned more carefully and we really need to strike a better balance so that of course judicial review is there as a meaningful check and balance on our system but that it's not stretched and abused so that legitimate decision making or legitimate statute is undermined. Just briefly on the EU law you're talking about, the EU retain law, I just wanted clearly a key part of the promises on Brexit was to take back to control and that included laws. Is this how you think you're going to be able to actually have something to point to by the time of the next election? Yes, because if we do want to you know, change other aspects or we want to regulate in a way which is divergent to European Union rules, if we want to really set out a new landscape for our legislative agenda, we do need to be completely unencumbered by the constraints currently imposed upon us from this body of law that I talked about, retained EU law. We've got to remember, you know, EU law took on a supremacy over our UK law over many years and because of our membership of the European Union. There are so many cases which illustrate the fact, some cases in the 1960s like Costa against NL, Van Henden lose, but culminating in the latter case of Factor Tame. And that's a case that everyone knows about, but it's of profound importance whereby the UK courts really reaffirmed their obligation to strike down national statute if it wasn't consistent with EU law or EU obligations. And that was a a real turning point for our legal system. It was a real realisation of the supremacy and the prevalence of EU law. We need to unwind that. We can only do that through primary legislation. Do any of your old Cambridge professors ever get in touch with their views on what you're doing now? (laughs) 
Well, I have, I was taught by some fantastic professors. All of them were brilliant and very encouraging and really sparked my broader interest in the study of law and the practice of it. And there are many, I don't want to really embarrass them, I guess, but there are many, many professors who have been wonderful and great influences on me. So, um, yeah, debates returning. <laughs> now, just to end this podcast, so two things I want to talk about, which are... Obviously, this is the Woman with Balls podcast. And the first was, I mean, you made history as the first cabinet minister to take maternity leave, which sounds mad, I think, to most people listening. And legislation had to be passed. Can you just explain what happened there? And I suppose what your experience was when it came to drafting that legislation? Well, you're right. It was a little bit of history in that I was the first member of the cabinet to have a baby whilst in office. It's her birthday today. It is. Time it, it is Gabriella's birthday today, which uh, brings home how quickly everything has gone. The act was passed to resolve and remedy an anachronism, frankly, because when I first told the Prime Minister that I was pregnant, he was incredibly celebratory and uh, happy for me. But we soon found out that there was no provision for a minister in this position and that I would have had to resign from my role simply because I was having a baby and in today's day and age that's not acceptable. So I was incredibly grateful to the Prime Minister, to the civil service, to actually all opposition parties because this went through without a vote and so therefore very quickly for their support in rectifying this anomaly which allowed me to maintain my didn't stay as attorney general but maintain my kind of equivalent position and provide me some with some maternity pay but you're right the the passage of the bill did provoke some interesting debates about the precise wording yeah the word woman was at first well there was some debate about whether it should say woman wasn't there you're right uh, the original wording said that pregnant persons were able to enjoy the benefits of the bill and I was quite disappointed, actually, that that wording was originally chosen. Some of the debates in the House of Lords were incredibly insightful, particularly the speech by Lord Winston, you know, the eminent biologist and scientist who really made it clear. You didn't think you'd need uh, to make it clear, but really made it clear that it was only really from a woman that a baby can be born. And really for that to be controversial was a, a sign of the mad times that we live in. Now, just finally, we've spoken about some of the Brexit issues you're working on in your current brief. But as you mentioned, you came into politics for lots of reasons. You found the free school and there's lots of domestic issues, too. And one of the ones I think is of particular interest to our listeners is ultimately something you've spoken on, which is rape prosecutions. You've pledged to improve the system on rape prosecutions where victims face a slow, frustrating and daunting experience. This stamp maybe out of date now but last year you know fewer than one in 60 rape cases leads to a charge in England that's from last year I suppose just a few things on that firstly just with the COVID backlog how bad is the issue in terms of the courts I mean I, I heard somewhere that if you were to bring a rape prosecution now it could take around two years to go to court it's a serious issue and no one in government is shying away from the challenge that we are facing when it comes to improving and increasing the rate of successful prosecutions and convictions. And there's a huge disparity between the number of complaints, the number of people who actually you know, call the police or walk through the doors of a police station saying, I've been raped, and the actual number of convictions. And that's why we published the end-to-end rape review last year. And it involves all relevant agencies and departments playing a role to fix this from the police to the crown prosecution service to the courts and so we really want to improve the experience for victims as they go through 
that journey. It's sometimes a very harrowing journey for obvious reasons, but it really does need to be better. And the way that they are supported, the way that they give evidence, the way that witnesses are, you know, the timely resolution of their complaints, they're all critical to ensuring that we get good justice. When you look at the numbers, many, many, you know, thousands, I think last year it was about 50 odd thousand complaints of rape were made to the police. About 10% of those make it through the first filtering process through to the CPS for a charging decision. So we need to get that number up. Thereafter, there's another drop between the number of cases which are charged and make it through to the actual trial system. We need to get that number up. And then fundamentally, at the final stage, there's a low number of prosecutions that result in a successful prosecution. We need to support victims better. We need to handle their evidence in a better way. We need to ensure that there's better working between the police and the prosecutors. And we need to streamline our processes when it comes to court. All of that work is afoot. I'm encouraged by the early signs of improvement, but there's a long way to go. You mentioned the CPS. I mean, so much power lies with the CPS. Does the CPS need to change? The CPS is an organisation which has been around for almost 40 years now. It's independent of government and therefore it takes its prosecutorial decisions according to a legal test. That being if there's a sufficiency of evidence and whether a prosecution's in the public interest. It's right that ministers don't interfere with that. The CPS has received funding from the government and we support it in some of its strategic priorities. But the CPS ultimately, I work with the Director for Public Prosecutions. I know that he's very cognizant of the challenges it faces. They want to do better and with the support of the whole system I'm confident that we will do better just two last questions for me just quick fire there are some who say eternal general should be a non-political role because actually there's a conflict there what do you say to them I disagree the alternative would be an unelected apolitical official we already have thousands of those people working as lawyers in the government I think being an elected and political appointee as Attorney General brings huge amounts of value to the role. You need to have an awareness of the political context within which you're working. Now, we're speaking on a week where Ukraine is clearly dominating, and after a very difficult few months for Boris Johnson, um, you have the Prime Minister obviously trying to look as though he's leading on Ukraine, but that we also have a situation where there's lots of questions about his handling of Partygate. You're one of the Prime Minister's most vocal supporters. Do you really think that he is in a position to continue? Oh, my goodness, without question. The Prime Minister has defied the odds and actually has um, delivered brilliant results for our country. Not only did he resolve the seemingly interminable crisis of our constitution in delivering Brexit, everyone thought that was impossible, Boris did it, but he's also, and I know we're not completely out of the woods and we still have to be cautious, navigated the unprecedented and stormy waters of COVID, you know, making the UK the first country in the world to approve a vaccine with record level rollouts of our vaccine and our boosters. When I talk to people in my constituency, they're so appreciative of the government when they talk about their experience getting getting a vaccine. And now we are seeing the Prime Minister lead the world, actually, in 
setting out a plan in supporting the Ukrainians against this tyrant Putin. And he has shown the courage, the fortitude, the skill and the ability to lead our country in a way which makes me very proud to be serving in his cabinet. And that's even before I talk about him winning our historic majority in 2019. And just finally, we ask everyone on the podcast, what is the worst advice you've ever been given, whether you've listened to it or told them to go away? Well, I was thinking about this, and there have been a few occasions where people have had my best interests at heart and warned me about the perils that I would face if I were to take a particular course of action. And it's occurred quite a few times. So people told me not to vote Tory because it's not for people like us. People told me not to apply to Cambridge because I wouldn't get in. People told me not to be a barrister because it's too hard to get accepted. People told me to give up trying to be an MP and that I should instead focus on getting married. People told me not to back Brexit because David Cameron wouldn't forgive me. People told me not to resign because Theresa May wouldn't forgive me. And people told me not to vote against the deal on MV3 because I would be a traitor to my party. And they were all wrong in all of those instances. So the moral of the story is to follow the courage of your convictions. Thank you, Suella.